Well, this morning we are going to be in 1 John. If you can open your Bibles to chapter 2. Matt Childs is going to come and read verses 3 through 17 for us. First John uh, chapter 2, 3 through 17. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness And does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Thanks, Matt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege we have to come together to hear your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak clearly to us this morning. Your word is life. Lord, would you give us ears to hear? And would you give us hearts that are transformed, we pray in your mighty name. Amen. Probably the most notable revival of religion America has ever seen was the Great Awakening. It began in full in 1734 after several decades of decline. 
Gone was the God-fearing generation that had settled the land. The new generation had forgotten God. Immorality, debauchery, and self-interest ruled. Few worried about the next world. Even those who held to the externals of religion had lost its heart. In an attempt to maintain shrinking church roles, relaxed rules on who could be baptized and take communion led to memberships bloated more with those who had no testimony of conversion than those that were clearly regenerated, with many of these even finding their way into ministry. Jonathan Edwards was the man that God used to light a spark that started in his church in Northampton, Connecticut, before spreading to 100 surrounding communities and eventually to each of the colonies as other preachers such as Whitfield and Wesley continued to fan the flames of revival in America and in Europe. Over roughly 40 years in span, God continued to move in mighty ways. Both sides of the Atlantic were affected as Hundreds of churches were planted and thousands were converted. In one two-year span, it was estimated that the church in America doubled in size. Whitfield would sometimes preach to crowds of 20 or 30,000 at a time. Think of this. This was in colonial America. There were no stadiums that held anything close to that. In fact, even the largest cities only began to approach that number. There were 12,000 in Charleston at the time, 20,000 in Boston, 25 in New York City, and the largest was 40,000 in Philadelphia. But the work was not without critics and detractors. Many decried the emotional responses and strange manifestations That included weeping and wailing and falling out of seats as people fell under the conviction of God. At the same time, many others were eager to pursue such experiences, not wanting to be left out of what was taking place. How was the church to discern what was a genuine work of God amidst clashing reports and ideas? Jonathan Edwards gives some great counsel. Before we get to what he said, though, I'm aware that in our own context, don't we also regularly wrestle with similar questions? What is a genuine work of God? For many of us, myself included, Haven't there been times of wrestling even within our own souls? Am I even saved? Or for our children who may say a prayer, but we wonder, is the work genuine? Is this going to last? Is this true? Or when we've heard the latest report of someone's encounter with the Spirit or or experience of seeing heaven. How are we to evaluate and find genuine whether these things 
are true works of God or not. This is where Edwards' counsel is so helpful. He said, a work is not to be judged is not to be judged of by any effects of the bodies of men, such as tears, trembling, groans, loud outcries, agonies of body, or the failing of bodily strength, because the Scripture nowhere gives us any such rule. In other words, you don't know if it's real just because someone cries. That's not the mark of whether there is a genuine work happening. I have abundantly insisted, he continues, that a manifestation of sincerity in fruits brought forth is better than any manifestation they can make of it in words of loan, and that without this, all pretenses to spiritual experiences are in vain. In other words, the the experience itself is never the sign. It's never the answer. One more quote from him. If some fall away into gross errors or scandalous practices, it is no argument that the work in general is not the work of the Spirit of God. In other words, if there are some that prove to be untrue, that doesn't mean the whole thing needs to be thrown away. That there are some counterfeits is no argument that nothing is true. Such things are always expected in a time of reformation. In other words, Edwards is saying, follow the fruit. Fruit reveals the true work. It determines what God has done and it will last. In particular, he gave the signs of love for God, love for His Word, love for others. These are the marks set forth for a genuine work of God. If these are the lasting fruits of an experience, then then no matter how peculiar the experience itself may be, how unfamiliar to our ears, it is from God. But if such fruit does not endure, then no matter how sincere someone might have seemed at the time, we have to conclude that it must have been caught up in emotion or some ecstatic high, but they do not evidence a true work of God. The fruit produced trumps any declaration of experience or special insight. Now, Edwards wasn't coming up with anything new. Sixteen centuries earlier, the Apostle John was also writing at a time when the need for discernment was critical. Near the end of the first century, he remained as one of the last day-in and day-out witnesses to the earthly ministry of Jesus. A new generation of teachers was stepping forward, but not all were proclaiming the gospel message in purity. Some brought their own traditions or ideologies to the message of Jesus, thereby subverting and diluting the potency of the glorious good news. 
So as the young church is wrestling with different voices, John seeks to provide a guiding light. Like a lighthouse, he seeks to shine the realities of gospel transformation clearly so that churches seeking to find their way aren't dashed against the rocks of false teaching. He does not simply argue against a particular strain of doctrine that the false teachers of his day are espousing, but he sheds light on principles that are true for all believers in all places at all times. And in going broader than just the current debate, he he gives markers by which all professing believers must measure themselves by, as well as tangibles to evaluate not only the false teachers in his day, but whichever ones rise up next. He provided Edwards with the principles he needed to discern the work of God 1,600 years later. And he provides a framework for us today as well. Of course, even for John, this, wasn't orig- this didn't originate with him. After all, 60 years prior to his writing this, he had been with Jesus when Jesus warned, Beware of false prophets, you who come who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. From our passage today in 1 John, we see three simple evidences John lays out that reveal a person's true standing. More than words or experiences, these signs show our true allegiance. Keep His commandments, love one another, and do not love the world. Let's begin, number one, with keep His commandments. Luke records Jesus' saying in chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you. John essentially takes that, paraphrases that as he begins in verse 3 saying, and by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says I know Him but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word In Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. These are sobering verses. Reading through this, kind of one of those swallow hard kind of moments. Because it points a finger right at us. It says, how you doing? 
there's not really a lot of room for middle ground here. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. But if we say we know Him and don't keep His commandments, we are liars. If we are in Him, we will walk as He walked. Obedience, keeping His commands. Oh, John's making it crystal clear that matters. There's no way around it. Obedience is important. But not simply for the sake of obedience. Instead, John points out that it matters because of what it gives evidence to. What it gives evidence to is knowing God. When someone makes no claim to follow Jesus, well, there is no incongruity when their life reveals that. But, when someone claims to know Him, that's where this test comes in. And the world seems to inherently know this, don't they? They, they have no trouble living like the devil. But when you say you follow Jesus, oh, there are eyes on you. Are you a hypocrite like I think everyone else is? Will you really walk out what he says? If we know him, we will obey him. We will walk as he walked. We will not love the world. We will do his will if we know him. You can know a lot about him and still turn your back on him. You can be orthodox in all your doctrine and yet have no love in your life. You can argue skillfully and correctly with Muslims or Jews or atheists about the truth they are missing without submitting personally to Him in your own life. But if you know Him, really know Him, you will be transformed. You will not be able to not love. You will not be able to not obey His commands. Here's the principle we're working with. At His command, the universe came into being. Light was separated from the darkness and stars took their place in the heavens. At His command, mountains stood tall and the oceans teemed with life. And because they know Him, they know Him, those same mountains would throw themselves into the sea if He told them to. Those same raging seas became as smooth as glass when He commanded them to be still in the storm. At His command, the frogs and the locusts invaded Egypt and the Red Sea parted to make a way for His people. At His command, the lion's mouths were shut for Daniel and a donkey's mouth was opened for Balaam. Because of his command, a valley of dry bones came to life. Fish overwhelmed the disciples' nets, and the lepers' spots were cleansed. Demons fled from the possessed. Sight returned to the bind. And strength was given to the lame. 
when he commanded Lazarus, come forth. Though he had been dead four days, he came forth. And indeed, such is the command of God that had he not specified that it was Lazarus that was to come out, would any of the dead have been able to resist his call? The mountains and the stars and the seas know him and they heed his command. Is it any surprise then that that John issues this test for all that claim to know him? These things, they know him as their creator. We know him as creator and redeemer. We know him as father and provider. The Alpha and Omega, friend of sinners, ancient of days, is our revelation not greater than the rocks and the mountains, better than the waves and the fish of the sea? Should not our response also be greater if we know Him? Really know Him? Will we not, like the rest of creation, obey his commands. Now last week we went through the verses just before this covering if we confess our sins He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins. And the reality that we have an advocate in Jesus John isn't now switching and and talking about sinless perfection. But he is talking about direction. Which way are we moving? Are we seeking to keep His commands? Are we more concerned about honoring Him and obeying Him today than we were yesterday, now, versus a year or two ago? Are we seeking to grow as disciples and walk as He walked What does our attitude towards His commands reveal about our claims to know Him and to love Him? This is the question that John wants to put forth to all. Commandments by nature are not optional. When God says to do something, there is only one appropriate response. But John here is not commanding us to obey commandments. That's not his end goal. Instead, he is pointing out that keeping the commandments is fruit. The fruit of knowing God. So the takeaway for us is not to try harder to obey, but to grow in our knowledge and our love of God. The fruit will follow and reveal the true work. Relationship with Him. Knowing Him. That is the goal. That is the point of all that John is trying to bring to our attention. For those of us who have been in love, what was it like when you first found that special someone, when you sought to spend as much time with them as you possibly could? Do you remember that time? Didn't you expend energy to get to know them as they really are? 
Were you content with a generic significant other? Or did you want to know the likes, the desires, the dreams of this particular person that you were infatuated with? Didn't you ask them a ton of questions about anything and everything? And then, wasn't it your aim to be the kind of person that they valued? Didn't the things that they found important suddenly grow in importance to you? Your actions became the overflow of your affections. It's no different with God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Get to know God. That's John's plea. Get to know Him by studying Him. Start with His Word. We've got some great resources out in the lobby if you need other places to help. This is our aim as we gather on Sunday mornings and times like Renew. It's to study Him. It's to know Him. Not just talk about Him, but to focus on Him. What He's come to do. What He means in our lives. Because we want to be transformed by that reality. Study Him. Learn His likes, His character. Spend time with Him and and your focus will be loving Him. Not trying harder to obey. Next, let's move to love one another. And actually, this could be more like 1B than number 2. Because keep His commandments. What commandments? I think John's saying here it's keep His commandments to love one another. This is more a continuation of the last point than a distinct new point. Because loving God and loving others is what keeping the commandments looks like. That's why John can say in verse 5, whoever keeps His Word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. It's seen as John talks in verses 7 and 8 about This old commandment given anew. No doubt he's referencing Jesus' summation of the law when he tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. This is Jesus' summary of the law, of the commands of God. If there were any further doubt, John essentially erases it in the next letter, 2 John, when he writes in very similar language. It's not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is the call. This is what the commands are pointing us to. This is what reflects our knowing God. Our loving God is that it overflows into love for one another. Then in verses 9 through 11, he equates our loving God, or our loving our brother with walking in the light and hating our brother with walking in the darkness. John is clear how we relate to others is to be a billboard of whether we know him or not. 
Last Sunday, I had lunch with George and Rita Williamson, who happened to be from New Jersey. It's also, uh, we were also with one of our neighbors who's from Long Island. I'm from Pennsylvania originally. During lunch, there was some discussion about a common northern mindset that is, how do we say it? It's less than gracious or friendly. There's some easily observable reasons that southern hospitality has a great reputation in comparison. In that context, Rita was sharing that one of the first things noticed by her Italian family when she became a Christian was her love for everyone. In fact, it was so striking that they told George to go check out the meetings she was going to because she must be involved in some type of cult. This behavior simply was just not like her. So George did check it out. And in the process, was wonderfully transformed as well. And if you know them today, you know them as some of the most hospitable folks you'll meet. This is the power of the gospel at work. That's not just saying you know him, but backing it up with a life of love. It's what comes out of us. It wasn't that she then tried to go around loving everybody. It's that God transformed who she was. And that was just apparent to everyone Immediately, she was a different person. That's the difference between walking in the darkness and walking in the light. If we are not marked by lives of love, we give no evidence of knowing Him no matter what words we proclaim or verses we quote. A selfish life surprises no one. Indeed, it's what everyone else walking in the darkness, living for number one, expects. But their troubles, John points out here, are compounded. They walk in the darkness, meaning they're active. They're active participants in walking out their lives in the darkness. Yet at the same time, he also says that they they don't know where they're going. Because the darkness has blinded them. I don't know about you, but I can look at our culture. I can look around us in our schools, our workplaces, our families, and be grieved at the spiritual state generally that we see all around us. And frankly, I get frustrated with specific individuals that represent different things that are part of that culture, part of the fallen sinful world rebelling against God that we live in. But these individuals are not the enemy. The enemy has blinded their eyes just as he once did ours. Yes, they actively participate in their sin and in the degradation of society, but our hope is not for their defeat or downfall, but in their salvation. That is their only hope. We're not looking just for a more comfortable ride via our society. 
some social problems to be solved. No, we're called to be light in the darkness. It is a spiritual battle no matter what the external manifestations may look like. This is our call. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. Our battle is much bigger than that. That's what we've been seeing from Paul these last several chapters of Acts. So he goes, he, he keeps his main purpose for being in view, even in prison, even by those that are threatening him, seeking to kill him. He's not trying to defeat them, he's trying to save them. Isn't that much more important win for us than besting someone in an argument, whether on Facebook? We're in a shouty match on some cable news show. Our love is to be a defining difference in how we relate to those around us. Loving one another is walking as Jesus walked. Loving one another is keeping His commandments. Loving one another is the fruit of knowing Jesus and loving Jesus. Christianity was never intended to be a private decision. A personal one, yes. One that we each must choose for ourselves. But not one which terminates in us. Instead, it's to radiate out from us and evidence the reality that has taken place in our love for others. That is living in the light in the midst of a dark and broken world. Which brings us to not loving the world. Obviously, this is a different definition of world in verses 15 through 17 than what John uses in his gospel in chapter 3 when he proclaims that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. There, Jesus is clearly talking about humanity the people of the world that God loves so much He sent His Son on a divine rescue mission. Here, John is not speaking about humanity itself, but rather life in a fallen world. A fallen way of living set up in opposition to God. And the dangers that this world offers are real. as we live in and are surrounded by the world and its way of thinking constantly. Paul, from a couple of his letters, mentions a man named Demas, a co-laborer who also sent his greetings to the Colossians and to Philemon, someone that was a traveling companion with Paul, part of the Gospel work. And yet we hear this tragic report given as the last Scripture record of him in 2 Timothy 4, where Paul writes near the end of his life, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Gone to Thessalonica. John gives three things we wrestle with in fighting a love of the world. Starts with desires of the flesh. Desires speak to our cravings and passions. 
Now, desires in and of themselves are not wrong, but what we desire can be wrong. Or the amount of importance we place on our cravings can betray the first place in our hearts and affections we are to reserve for God alone. Obviously, in this short verse, tons of details aren't given, spelling out everything that's entailed in these three desires. But from the broader context of Scripture, it would seem that desires of the flesh refer to our appetites. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that would be a desire of the flesh. When Satan tempted Jesus to turn a stone into bread because he was hungry after 40 days of fasting, he was appealing to a desire of the flesh. An internal craving that he was seeking to have rule their hearts instead of the place that God alone deserved. Desires of the eyes seem to be appeals to the affections. Whereas our appetites rule Within us, the desire of the eyes seems to be things outside us that compete for our hearts. Again, in the garden, the woman saw not only that the tree was good for food, but that it was a delight to the eyes. Oh, just seeing the fruit and looking on it. Oh, this is something that I want even more than obeying what God has told me. Similar tactic Satan used when showing King Jesus all the kingdoms of the world that would be his if only he would bow down to him. The pride of life or pride of possessions, what one has and does. Eve again helps us see with her craving that which was good for making one wise. Oh, that's what's appealing. This will make me like God Himself. Or Satan tempting Jesus to throw Himself from the heights to prove that God would not let Him be harmed, thereby putting God to the test. This pride of life is seeking our glory over God's glory. These are not from the Father, but from this fallen world. Therefore, They are not to define us. This world cannot give us what we need. This world can't even give us what it promises. Whatever the world does give will not last. Verse 17 tells us that love for the world is not just wrong, revealing an absence of the love of the Father. It's also foolish. It is giving our affections and time and energy for that which is passing away. The one who gains this whole world yet forfeits his soul loses everything. The one who dies with the most toys is dead. Our stuff doesn't follow us. It and everything else in this world will one day burn up. Are we living for that which will decay and burn or that which is incorruptible? Whoever does the will of God, John says, abides forever. 
What are we living for? What are we working for? What are we consumed with? Are we accumulating what will last or what will be consumed? Now we've jumped over a section because it seems to have sort of been wedged into this passage. An interruption almost of what we've been going through. But it's a very important interruption. It actually helps us to anchor this whole section that we've just gone through. We could consider it a fourth point or maybe better the fuel that makes all the other points possible. In other words, I think John is saying with this section, we can keep His commandments to love one another and not the world because we are forgiven. Because we know God. Because we have overcome the evil one. It goes back to the reality that keeping His commandments to love one another and not the world is fruit. It's the fruit of knowing Him and loving Him. And it's this fruit that reveals the true work. Well, what is the true work? John talks about it here in these verses where he lists these different members of the body. He's saying, because, because you are forgiven, you do know Him, you have overcome the evil one, you can keep His commands to love one another and not the world. You are and will continue to bear fruit evidencing that reality of what has taken place in your lives. This is meant to be a reassurance. Both to John's first readers and to you and I. He comes along affectionately giving different family designations that represent different stages of spiritual maturity. He's not only speaking to the men in these verses. It's just the terms that he's given to represent where different folks are in their walk with the Lord. Some are new believers. Little children, as Paul identifies them. That's not about age. It's just about the time and experience they've had walking with the Lord. And this time is defined by the wondrous realities of knowing God as Father. What an amazing revelation. We who don't deserve to even be His servants, that we could be the children of God. That He, Ancient of Days, Creator of heaven and earth, judge of all the universe, is a Father to us. Oh, that, that's Christianity 101. That God is our Father. Not only that, but that our sins are forgiven. Well, that's a foundation that the rest of the Christian life can be built upon. So that's how John talks about and identifies those who have first come to faith are just taking their steps. Little children, this is what you know. You know that God is your Father. You know your sins are forgiven. 
Everything else can be built upon that. Meanwhile, the mature fathers, the other end of the spectrum, have weathered many storms, seen many seasons come and go. This is where John himself would be identified. But they haven't just seen a lot. They have stood the tests of time anchored by their personal knowledge and relationship with Him who is from the beginning. The One who does not change. Yes, seasons of life may come and go, but in the end you're standing because you see the God who is faithful through every season. Well, that, that's maturity. A trust in a God who's not carried by the waves of your circumstances, whose love for you is not dependent on how you feel that day. What a wonderful picture of maturity. You know Him who's from the beginning. One who does not change. That's an anchor. The young men are those that have matured past the doubts and struggles of when they first believed, but their current walk is still very much defined by fight. They have overcome the evil one, and they are strong because the Word of God abides in them. But it's clear in how John is still addressing them, reassuring them. Day by day, they need His Word and the strength that comes from it because they are in the trenches of the Christian life. It's a battle. We do see circumstances rise and fall. Seasons come and go. And we recognize we're not on the other side of it yet. And so, John's seeking to reassure, yes, it's a fight. But remember, you're strong because His Word abides in you. Though it may not feel like it all the time, you have overcome the evil one. That's not a question mark anymore. It's done. Remember that as you take up your sword again today. You're going to need that reality to not grow weary, to keep on fighting, to keep pressing on in the war and the battle and the strife. Because He hasn't forgotten you. He's equipped you. He's strengthening you. He'll keep you to the end. The way this appears in the passage is almost like an interruption. Like John was going along, trying to help them distinguish those that are in darkness versus light, keeping commandments versus not, loving versus hate, hating. And, and John wants, it just kind of dawns on him. He wants to make sure readers in the churches aren't confused or unsure regarding where he sees them. Sure, there are different levels of maturity by God's grace in every church. But even those that are little children in the faith know the Father. Know God as Father. And have had their sins forgiven. Their slate wiped clean. 
John doesn't want them confusing his categories with perfectionism. He's seeking to reassure them, you're actually in a good place. I'm writing some things that are hard by nature. Things that we need to take assessment of. That we need to take assessment of. But it's not for the purpose of despair. So they can identify true and false teachers. So they can come alongside someone who truly is deceived about where they stand. But 12 through 14, he really wants to bring comfort and assurance to those who are in the faith, for those that do know Jesus. Because you are forgiven, because you do know him, because you have overcome the evil one, your obedience and love is being shown. John doesn't want them to wonder which column he places them in as he writes. He's writing to serve them, to protect them, not to condemn them. He wants to warn them of the true nature of the false teachers while also giving them assurance of their own standing. That's why he says in verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know Him. He doesn't want to leave any doubt. By this we know that we have come to know Him, that we obey His, that we keep His commandments. He sees them living in the good of this, truly loving one another, and lets them know it. And I have no doubt if He were here this morning, He would want to do the same thing for you. Your love for one another is apparent. You do seek to walk it out. No, we're not perfect in it. Yeah, we've got our problems. But there's a trajectory. There's a movement and a growth. And what we see as we relate with one another, what those who first come into our meetings remark on and is evident to them is love that you have for one another, for those that come into these doors. That's a light shining in the darkness. I have no doubt that He would similarly want to encourage you. Such warnings and cautions, they should cause all of us to examine our lives. But not for the purpose of despair. If you are moving in the right direction and bearing fruit, you have much to take heart in. If you know God, if you're bearing fruit and loving one another, if you've been forgiven all your trespasses, walking as He walked, overcoming the evil one, having the Word of God abide in you, and you being able to abide in Him forever, what glorious realities! Take courage knowing whatever tomorrow brings. You walk it out knowing Him. And if you find yourself sitting here this morning with a fresh reality that you don't know Him, and maybe you have said that you do, but you see this morning the evidence of your life reveals you have been deceived, 
or in your heart of hearts you know you've been a liar. Stumbling and blinded by the darkness, you too can take heart this morning. For you are seen more clearly right now perhaps than ever before. God is not revealing this to make you feel bad this morning or to lay a heavy burden on you. He is showing you so that you might know Him for real. So that your life too can be transformed. So that your sins can be forgiven and you don't have to pretend anymore. Or be doomed forever to be trying harder to turn things around on your own. He wants you to know Him. That's why He's showing you these things this morning. He's not interested in you trying harder. Are you perfect yet? If you answered yes, you're a liar or you're deceived. It's not the goal in this life. Is there transformation? Does transformation mark your life? Is there progress in showing your knowing, not of facts, but the eternal one? Do you know the Father? Do you know His forgiveness? Does that reality give you strength to overcome the evil one? Does His Word abide in you? How does knowing and loving Him affect your obedience? Your love for others? Are you more drawn to the things of this world or to Him? Now, again, I want to be clear. He comes to us where we are. The point of this is not to say measure up. The point of this is to say there's hope for all. If we know Him, the fruit will follow. If we love Him, we'll be transformed. Know Him. Let His Word abide in you and watch your love and obedience grow. Not perfectly yet, but in ways that deepen your assurance and glorify Him all the more. Love Him. The fruit will follow because fruit reveals the true work. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would help us to grow in our knowledge of You. Help us to fall more in love with You, to pursue You Lord, where appropriate, I pray that You would forgive us for our vain attempts at trying harder that seek to bypass relating to You. Would You give us the desire and the hunger to know the One that so loved us He sent His only Son to rescue us. May that reality overflow into all of life, we pray. Let's stand together.